0: Welcome to the All of Life podcast from Redemption Church Tempe, where we have conversations on faith, culture, theology, and beyond to help us live all of life, all for Jesus. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to the All of Life podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. My name is Josh Butler. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Redemption Tempe. Many of us have friends who are wrestling with God. Some of them are going through a dark night of the soul. Others are deconstructing their beliefs and possibly walking away from the faith. We're often asking, how can I best walk with them and talk with them about their experience? Well, today I want to try and model having a conversation like this. I'm not saying I do it perfectly, but I think it'd be helpful to normalize how to have conversations with friends who are struggling with God. One of my best friends, Paul Ramey, he just released an album that chronicles his wrestling with God. He's been through a gnarly season the last few years and his struggles with faith show up in this album. So I wanted to talk with him about it. We explore our common ground in this episode, the power of music and creativity to process grief, as well as some areas that we see things differently, Uh, distinguishing the dark night of the soul from deconstruction to apostasy, the dangers in our culture's elevation of doubt to a virtue, the appropriateness of profanity in our life with God, and the role of community in processing doubt and struggle. I hope this helps inspire you to not be shy or afraid of talking with your friends who are wrestling with their faith, that we can be both good listeners and ask real questions. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the All of Life podcast where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. My name is Josh Butler, one of the pastors here at Redemption Tempe, and today we are talking about wrestling with God. Um, I am stoked for this conversation. I've got one of my longtime best friends here, Paul Ramey. What's up, Paul?
1: Hey, guys. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me, man.
0: (laughs) Yes, and uh, Paul has just released a new album. One of the reasons we're talking about this theme is Paul has just released a new album that is really beautiful musically. It's called Shadows and actually the first half of it's been released. It's kind of a gradual release, uh, a couple tracks at a time. And so the first half, the A side of that album has been released um, and maybe by the time this is out you'll, you'll be able to hear y- even more of it. But uh, I am excited because this Album Shadows is on this theme of wrestling with God. So that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Uh, But first, to set some context, Paul, dude, I'm so stoked that we get to be having this conversation together. Totally. Uh, Paul is one of my longtime best friends. I'd say two best friends, you and Ben, you know, the three of us are kind of like the the three amigos, the three musketeers, whatever. And uh, I've been in it together for years. Uh, Paul, you were the worship pastor at Amago Day, the church where I was. Uh, we formerly served together there yeah. for a long time as pastors together. Uh, you are now working with Compassion International, uh, doing amazing work, helping uh, move helping move children out of poverty around the world yeah. uh, and communities and um, around the world. And man, I'm just stoked to have you on. Is there anything else you'd want to say by way of introduction?
1: Oh my goodness. Uh... No, I think you you got it. I mean, I I think those those ten years at Imago were some of the most formative, and I think that it solidified it solidified friendships that we'll have forever. And you know, you you kind of know those forever friends when you get them, and you don't let them go, man. So I appreciate you and love you tons. Uh, I mean, for everybody else, I live out in California. Uh, I mean, California. I work in California. I live in <laughs> I live in Portland, but recently moved to Camus, Washington, across the river because. Why all the Portlanders aren't doing that, I won't know, but I don't know. You just like no income tax, you can go over the river, get your type of Costco, come back over, you know, <laughs> <laughs> cost of living, raised like all the whole thing. So anyway, it's a no brainer. Totally. So, so we live yeah, in Camas now and uh, yeah, it's good. I just became a awesome. grandpa.
0: Congratulations, man. Two weeks that's ago. awesome. Wow. That's so amazing. Congratulations yeah, to you and Mayor, your wife. Yeah, that's awesome, yeah, you guys. Wow. Well, hey, so you've just released this new album called Shadows, and it is beautiful musically, man. I've been having it nonstop in my earpods while I'm walking around, in my my, uh, car when I'm driving, dude, and just like, there's a lot of just power and beauty to this. And uh, you titled it Shadows, you even kind of wrote a description of this having to do with uh, just this journey of, we all find ourselves in these seasons of living in the shadows, of walking through the shadows where things are hard, a struggle, and I wonder if we could start by maybe you sharing, uh, well, and to give people a bit of where we're going, I think first half, I want to talk about the album itself, some of the beauty and the music and the backstory. Then second half, we want to talk about some of those themes of like, man, wrestling with God and journeying with those seasons when we feel like we're in the shadows. Mm. Uh, But maybe, Paul, let's start with the title and the backstory. Like, I'm curious if you could share a bit. Uh, You've been through a brutal last few years, and this album has really come out of a season of suffering in your own life. Could you maybe share what some of that journey has been like and how that's informed kind of the title and the concept of this album? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. I would, I would say I've had an amazingly incredible life, but it's also been marked at times in different seasons by some intense struggle and suffering. Uh, And then, you know, that, I mean, that, that as a kid, experienced some really traumatic things, uh, you know, and then and then dealt with those. I thought I dealt with those. And then at times this stuff comes back and that's just the way life is. You just go through these seasons of struggle. And I it, it's funny, like there are two types of people in this world, you know, those who suffer and those who will. And there's n- like, we don't have a choice in that. You're just, you're going to suffer. And so uh, and then it feels to me like when it rains, it pours. So it's like mm-hmm. when it happens, it really happens. I've got some questions about that as to why that is, but, uh, I'll start the story about three years ago, uh, a little over three years ago, I took a sabbatical. I was at a Mago day, serving as the worship pastor. Things were good. Uh, and, and then felt like at the same time, uh, that, that my wife felt like, uh, we both just sensed that we were probably going to be done serving at Amago Day, and I didn't know what was next. So I, uh, I kind of stiff armed that that feeling and <laughs> came back and tried to get right back into things. And actually felt more free in that see in that season than I had ever felt at Amago. Uh, I think partly is is because I I started to feel released in some sense. And, uh, when you feel released like that, all of a sudden, um, it just seems like there's a courage that comes. And so, you know, if I'm honest, I wish I would have served like that for the previous 10 years. I mean, it would have been amazing, but, uh, so, but felt released, ended up having some conversations with the pastor there, pastor Rick and, and, uh, and we both felt like, yeah, this is probably the best. And so I stepped down and when I stepped down, getting out of ministry will be its own season of trauma for any pastor that's been in it for 27 years, you know? And I think one of the things that that did was cause me to look at my own identity, uh, the level of enmeshment in my role as a pastor, how much I relied on that for defining who I am and who I was. And, and so, what followed was about a six-month um, massive identity crisis trying to mm-hmm. figure out, trying to place those things. There's a lot of really healthy things in ministry, you know, affirmation of people, the calling that you really sense from God uh, in what you're doing, um, the opportunity that you have, that you've been given to do this. That's another affirmation of calling and and ability. All those things are really healthy. But then there's an unhealthy part that is um, – affirmation of people, <laughs> you know, in, in the bad way, like where, where you need it. You need those strokes from people to to keep on rolling and and to affirm yourself and define yourself and all of those things. And then another un- unhealthy part is ego. I mean, it just steps in and pride and all those things are are working and it's really difficult to parse those out when you're in the role. And so when I got out of it, all of a sudden I was able to parse out some of those things and it was like, it just, it caused me to realize and be able to see from a different perspective how enmeshed I was. And that, like I said, that just brought about this identity thing. And that was really difficult. And then about six months in, I learned that I had cancer, I had symptoms and, and I went in and, and a routine sort of colonoscopy turned into waking up on the table and the doctor right there said, you've got cancer. I mean, she didn't even wait, for the, for the diagnosis to come back, you know, uh, officially, she just said, yeah, you've got cancer and we got to get this taken care of quickly. So within two weeks I was in the operating room and they, uh, operated and, and that was, um, you know, that was brutal. I mean, I think when you hear the word cancer, you literally think I went pretty dark, pretty quick, you know? And, and so all the possibilities like, man, I'm done. Like I, I literally, I think I'm, I'm going to die. And, and, um, and, you know, there's a lot behind that. I, I'm, a, I'm a hypochondriac, so I'm going to assume the worst pretty quickly. <laughs> Never, ever have me go to WebMD. I'm, it's not my friend <laughs> at all. Yeah. So so anyway, I <laughs> uh, got cancer. I'm one of the lucky ones who was able to go through surgery. They got clear margins and no lymph nodes, and that was a grace. And um, and and uh, at that point in time, they didn't feel like that, that they needed to do chemo or radiation, and they just were going to watch it. So uh, about six months after that, I had more symptoms. I went back in, there was more growth. And so they were concerned about that. I got those removed as well. And so it's been a, so I'm in remission now. And, um, and so we're just keeping a close eye on it, but it's always in the back of your mind. And then literally probably eight months after that, uh, we're in the middle of COVID and, um, my mom and my dad and my grandma all got, <coughs> excuse me, all got COVID at the same time. They were not vaccinated. They all went into the ICU the same exact day. And my mom didn't make it. And my grandma didn't make it. And my dad did make it. And he's alive and well today. But uh, that was the most traumatic thing. And, I, you know, I mean, not to get into the weeds on that, but, uh, you know, we're all standing outside the hospital the day she died. And, and, um, and I, I, for whatever reason, during Delta, they weren't letting a ton of people into the hospital, so they just had one person. They said you can only have one person, and not even one person at a time. It was one person can go in, mm-hmm. and so for whatever reason, my family elected me, and I went in, and um, mm-hmm. and man, that and that that was I was not prepared for what I was about to see, and mm-hmm. it was the most traumatic thing that I've that I've ever seen, uh, and I walked out of there uh, with sort of this snowball of of kind of things building, you know, getting out of ministry, cancer, and then my mom dying. And, and I, uh, I walked out of that room different than when I went in and I, and mm-hmm. it did something to me. Uh, it, it brought about, it really sort of culminated. Um, you know, we, we'll talk about this later, but this, even that term "dark out of the soul. i I, you know, a lot of people throw that around, especially a lot of young people. I, I feel like it's weird. I don't know if it's fad, but, um, it's thrown around, but it's a real thing, and I, I would say probably seventy five percent of the people that use that term probably aren't in it. <laughs> mm. You know, like mm. yeah. like your coffee getting cold, you have to microwave it. <laughs> it isn't a dark night of oh the soul, my gosh, but, like, it's
0: so dark.
1: <laughs> but <laughs> like, but there is such a thing, and I, and um, and I don't want I don't want to presume my my suffering is like it's trivial in, in the in the face of other people's suffering. I get that. I know that. But it's my subjective experience as well. And so, um, you know, so as I've gone through this stuff, it, I came out of the other side really asking a lot of questions and wrestling through the the really the things we're talking about today. Just uh, where is God in, in the midst of all of this? Does he even care as he pulled away? Is he a big mean kid on an anthill, you know, that just sort of and I kind of went to this very deistic place, you know, of like. I don't know that he's really connected to us all that much. Mm. And, um, and I, I don't, I don't want to pretend that I, that I've arrived somewhere. You know, I, I'm in the middle of the struggle and the wrestle still. I, I do think I'm climbing up the other side a little bit at this point in time, but that's, that's a little context.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much, man, for sharing all that. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk next about uh, maybe you can talk about the album itself now. And yeah. I'd be interested to hear you say like both with the title and, uh, as well as maybe you can pick either like if you had had one favorite track on the album like I know it's difficult to ban it's like choosing your yeah. favorite child or something you know but, yeah, yeah, but yeah. is there either a favorite track or maybe a, a few favorite kind of lyrics that are a window yeah. into some of you processing that journey yeah. on this album
1: yeah that's it's hard to pick I mean it's funny my wife asked me uh the other day like what's your favorite song and I was like the last one I wrote, you know, like it's all, it's always the last one you wrote. Um, but I would say, so first of all, the title, yeah. Shadows. I mean, and you, you alluded to it earlier. I did write up a thing um, about it, but I do think, I do think that there's really a lot, there's very few things that as humans we have in common and, and then the billions of humans that have existed from, from, in the past and the billions that will, you know, if that's a thing (laughs) and the shadow, I think the shadow is one of them. We have that in common and uh, whether it's a moment or it's a season uh, I think each one of us are going to experience sort of the disappearance of the light. And in the, in the dictionary shadows, you know, is defined as a dark area where, where a light source is blocked by an opaque object. And uh, and that's, that's a shadow. And it feels to me like that's, You know whether it's COVID or the death of a parent or cancer or poverty or disease or abuse or trauma as a kid or whatever that that is, um, we're unified in that place as humans in the shadow. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I called it shadows. It's just sort of like we all we all deal with this. And I think I do think in the West we try to run away from it as fast as possible. You know, uh, we we stiff arm it. We don't want to sit there. And I and I, what I'm learning is if I can sit in the place of the shadow and and be okay with with um, being there and not pretend that I that I'm not that you know and try to run the other way. I mean, honestly, it's our it's our own version of prosperity gospel. You know, we might not believe in the prosperity gospel in the sense that you know God wants me to be rich, but but we believe in it it seeps into our theology and into our lifestyle. When we start to look at um, this, this idea of suffering, you know, think about it. The Torah was all about obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings cursing. Right. And, and we look at that now and we're like, that seems laughable or, or, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't believe that we believe the gospel. We believe uh, in grace. We believe that, that the spirit and, uh, is with us and he's our comforter and a guide and all of those things. And yet uh, we, we, we will go to that place where we actually are like, man, some, he must've done something, you know, or (laughs) the same things that Job, that, that Job's friends said to him, like something, he must've done something or something's at work or he's not being honest about things. And that is just the, that is an indicator that we're still living in the land of Torah and the age of Torah rather than the age of gospel. And uh, and new covenant. So anyway, I do think that we resist that in the West and I, I'm learning the value of sitting in that space of desolation and mm. uh, learning as much as I can from it. And that's the point, right? That's the point. Yeah. Like it, it's so cliche, but you come, you become bitter or you become better. And mm. a lot of people have written about like that, the, this sort of um, trajectory of life, you know, if I had a graph, if we had a graph here, if people could see what I'm doing, but like there's this trajectory upward in our twenties and thirties where we, where we experience success and, and, um, and we need to experience those success to kind of define who we are, but most of it's an outward check, outward projection. Uh, and we're creating sort of this image to the world. And then we hit a crisis at some point in time. And that crisis is sort of the plateau And if you if you hit that crisis, and you pay attention um, to what what it is that you should be learning in that space, then over time in your 30s and 40s and 50s, um, that is starting to define you. And then you move you can drop into what a lot of people call the wisdom journey. You know, in your 50s and 60s and 70s, where your whole life is meant to be poured out. But a lot of people miss on their heroic journey up in their twenties and thirties, they miss sort of that off ramp in the crisis. They experience crisis, but they just don't bother to, they want to keep on pushing into those successes. And so they're defined by their success or their achievements or their money or whatever it is. And a lot of writers have referred to them as the old fool. You know, those are the people who you hang out with. You're like, man, I don't care how much money you have just, and then, and then, if you're on that sort of plateau in the crisis throughout your midlife and you never drop off the other end, uh, you, you're not allowing the crisis to actually do something in you and you become what a lot of people call the bitter fool, where you just you just didn't let the crisis form something in you. And, and now you just kind of turned into that old man or, or woman that we all know that we see like, man, they just are bitter. We don't want to be around them. And I think my goal is to let this stuff for me so that I, I, I am in the, I'm sitting in the crisis long enough to, to uh, I don't want to sit there longer than I need to. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't dig the darkness, but I want to sit there long enough to where I can let the pain transform me. And then mm-hmm. I want to drop off the other end. And, and a lot of writers call that guy that, that pours his life out for other people, takes all the stuff he's learned in the crisis. Now that, that, you're full of a lot of substance to give other people uh, who are going through the same thing. Paul, Paul refers mm-hmm. to that all the, all over mm-hmm. scripture, all over the epistles. And mm-hmm. so we use our suffering, right. To, to pour into those who are also suffering. And, and then, so a lot of people call that, that guy at the very bottom of that third road, that journey, the, the uh, Holy fool. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the goal, you know,
2: so anyway, wow, that was a, wow.
1: a long way of around uh basically saying, yeah, the shadows forming something in us. Um yeah. yeah well, so that's- Yeah, man.
0: Yeah. Well, dude, I love if I can piggyback off that, man, yeah, one of the some of the language we we tend to use here at Redemption 2 is uh often the J curve. It comes from a guy Paul Miller, but just that like the shape of the Christian life is not up into to the right. It's actually like the shape of a jail. Like you start at kind of the 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 small part at the bottom of the j, you know, like you are going down and entrusting yourself to God to raise you up. It's a pattern of death and resurrection, like dying to yourself, dying to your dreams, dying to the things that you thought life was going to be like all that. And then it's not just like a one-time event. Like I'm following Jesus and I, you know, it's the baptismal pattern. Like you go down and you trust God to raise you up out of the water, out of the grave. And that it's not just a one-time thing. It's a repeated pattern in little ways and in huge ways in our lives of letting go of dying to ourselves and entrusting ourselves to Christ to raise us. And as you said, I do think often in, uh, American culture and then the church as well, you know, in America, like we can have this temptation to, we want to avoid the going down, you know, mm-hmm. because we want to avoid the shadows. We can want to avoid those dark places because at times we hold on to the, this myth of dude, if God's really on your side or culturally, if you're really living the American dream where, you know, like your life is just up and to the right nonstop. Yeah. And so I really admire the way that, um, you, as we've, you know, been friends and, you know, through this, this journey that, uh, you've sought to be honest and kind of raw before God with just, you know, with, uh, with that process of not pretending like you're in the green pastures when you're in the shadows. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's it.
1: That's it, man. Yeah, There's a, so the first song on the, on the record is called Withered Leaf. And I, I, you asked about a song. I mean, it goes, it's a good segue into that song, what you were just saying. Um, I found myself, you know, I, the, the record is, has its own chronology. And I, I think that's important too. It's hard to release side A uh, mm-hmm. without, without side B for me, but it was just the way we did it. Um, the
0: second half of the novel is still. Uh, yeah. Cause it's,
1: you know, yeah, it doesn't resolve in the in side A. So I'm looking forward. We're planning on releasing it the first day of Lent side B and, and hopefully it's a soundtrack to, to lament for a lot of people, which is really important. Maybe we could talk about that later, but I think, Withered leaf does get at like um, some good I- ideas. Basically, I wanted to start with the bigger question, you know, of what is going on. <laughs> like, what, really, what is going on? I'm I'm pulling up the lyrics right now. I think um, here we go. Yeah, so it starts off like it's it just presents this larger question of. Uh, And I use this imagery of leaves and and figs and and trees, sort of that whole metaphor to kind of tie it all together. Uh, The fruit of the tree was given to me in a land where I ate without scarcity. The leaf of the fig meant nothing to me until you told me it came from the tree I can't eat, until you showed me the pain that I didn't see. And the chorus just says, I can't can't make sense why you made it. It seems so understated, the tree that would break us. And now we live in a graveyard without any safeguards of living again.
2: The fruit of the tree was given to me In a land where I ate without scarcity The leaf of the fig meant nothing to me Till you told me it came from the tree I can't eat till you showed me the pain that I couldn't see Can't make sense why you made it Seems so understated The tree that would break
1: I think that that kind of presents a bigger, just the the mm-hmm. meta question for me of what is all this brokenness and why? And it seems like even the idea of a tree that would then break us all is so understated, like you know, uh, and, and almost unnecessary. And I understand, I understand that, and I understand what it brought about. It just when you're in the face of sin, some of those bigger questions. Are more subjective than objective, and when when I think you're in the face of suffering, uh, you feel the subjective question more than than the objective truth uh, Mm. makes sense. You know, yeah, man.
0: I I think how many times uh, you know I've been asked the question, even my own kids, of like why not just make the tree? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why just mm-hmm. not make the tree? You know, like the the, the, the bad one, the two <laughs> so good totally. and evil, you know? And, uh, and I can, you know, give a theological response to that, but when you're in the midst of it, I like, used like, dude, there's just the real question when you're facing the raw brokenness of the world and it's all caving in and crashing in like a tsunami around you. Like, yeah. dude, the heart cry, like, why? You know, like, like and I, totally. I mean, my band too would be like, dude, like the suffering suffering and evil is um, I'm not saying that there's no good responses or, you know, thoughts to that, but I would say it's the hardest question for Christian theology to answer. Like anyone who gives a simple pat answer. Is not actually wrestled with the question, you know? Like, right. dude, it's, totally. yeah, I mean, I've written on like hell and judgment and a holy war and atonement, you know, suffering. Like, I've written on sex and actually like all, all the whatever. But like, <laughs> that's when I'm like, I feel like I need to be in my 80s before I write that book, you know? Like, that's, totally. that's like, it's really yes. heavy duty yeah, stuff. Man. Yeah,
1: man, that's it. And I, I mean, in the last part of that song, I just the tag basically ends with, um, "Is this just a story that's trying to explain the reason why we live our lives in exile and in shame?" Just some figs and trees and withered leaves while we wrestle with all this bitter grief and the entanglement of blind belief.
2: Is this just a story? Let's try.
1: you know, that's how, that's how I felt. You know, I, I think, um, and there's, as the, as the record progresses, um, I get more into detail. In fact, the second song is is the song I wrote directly after my mom died and it's called Caught in a Thistle. And it just talks about her struggle her whole life. She suffered greatly. And, um, and that, and it, and that didn't make sense to me. And, and the chorus of that song, you know really kind of it's brutal and and maybe we could talk about this a little bit but just that that idea of lamenting um in fact before i even say those lyrics the very end of the record i have a song called lost myself and uh and in the same way that job sort of you know at the very end of job which that book just baffles me anyway but at the very end you know he says he confesses i've said too much i've said more than i should have and he apologizes and i and i think and the beautiful thing about job is that you know you look at the beginning of job and him and god are tight there's a relationship there whatever that is at the beginning of job where god and satan are together and and God's even one that initiates it. Like, hey, have you considered my servant Job? I don't understand that. And that freaks me out. And I think all of us at every moment should be constant. The fact that we're not all constantly saying, holy crap, like what What happened there? <laughs> don't look at me. We should be scared <laughs> to death of that. But, you know, the, the reality <laughs> is like, Josh. what? yeah, whatever, whatever that is, or whether it's a metaphor, it actually happened, I don't know. But I will say at the beginning, Job's tight with God and then as he gets as his friends talk to him and as he's processing through his suffering he's he's talking to god less and less and about god more and more and there becomes distance and and then we get all the way to the end where he's lost everything and then he and then he and then god gives everything back to him you know restores him and then there's this amazing moment where you know you, it's almost like when you're watching a movie you can't even you don't notice it happened, but it did, and all of a sudden, him and God are talking again, and they're tight, and and there's this beautiful rapport and relationship again. and And in that moment, he says, "I, I said things I, I shouldn't have," and God calls him out on it and says, "You know, were you there when I created Behemoth and Leviathan?" and And in the, it, you know, when you're reading through that, you're like, "That seems really uh, heartless in a sense." You know, like you put him all the way through this stuff, and then you ask him, like. Hey, you did You can't see this. You didn't know. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know my purposes. Were you there when I created? Blah blah blah. And so, but regardless, the very end, Job and Job and God are are back together. And there's that moment of confession of him saying, "I've said too much." And I, and the chronology of my record is very similar to the Book of Job. Like it just has that same sort of progression of lamenting, exhausting myself against God, saying some things that I probably shouldn't have said. And then at the end, realizing you're with me. And that the last words of the, that song says, um, you know, uh, I, I, it says basically, it's a really slow, uh, methodical song, basically it repeats itself over and over. It just says, I've lost myself. Um, and 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 then at the very end, it says, Bring me back to the 99. And there's a real cry to, to be, you know, because there's a reality like in the face of all this stuff. I might doubt I might I might venture off into questions I might I might I might allow myself to um have the margin even where I didn't have the margin before to ask certain things where maybe in ministry I had to toe the line in certain ways and I didn't have the margin to ask those questions and now I've been sort of freed up to ask those questions and at the end of the day I feel a real um confidence in where home is still and so and and that feels right to me and I know that he's calling me back over and over again um and and you know and this is just me being super vulnerable but you know there's at times I don't want to be called back because I'm I I just am there's some anger there still or there's some I, I don't understand I I know less about God than than you know ever <laughs> I have more questions than ever through the suffering um but in some sense I I, I think that that's the point. You know that that I am at a place where I, I feel like I've been the ego has been kicked out of me in a huge way, and and um, and I'm left sort of as this sort of withered, you know, stump of a person, and and then at the same time realizing my view of God is much bigger than it ever has been, and my fear of God is much greater than it ever has been, and and yet also I I can sense that that intimacy that he wants me to have more than ever before as well. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, dude, it's uh, it's refreshing to hear about a narrative concept album, like in an era when there's so many like just the singles that are just kind of made to try and get on that Spotify playlist or Radio Play or whatever, you know, and actually like, I I remember back in the day when it was cassettes, you know, I was a kid and it's just like (laughs) you had to listen to the whole thing all the way through and there was just this beauty to like the arc, almost telling a story through the album as a whole um man well thanks for sharing all that that's a good segue to your last point into uh I'd love to talk about how Christians have historically used different types of language to talk about the experience of wrestling with God so mm-hmm. on the one hand for example you've got language like the dark night of the soul that you mentioned earlier which has mm-hmm. got this deep tradition throughout Christian history and speaks to going man we all have these times and these seasons where God seems absent. It feels like God's left the building where we're encountering suffering. Like maybe we've never experienced before. There's threats before us that seem unovercomable. We just don't know if we're going to make it. And yet uh, the heart of that tradition is like God is forming us in that process. And there's a process to trust him in the darkness. Like there's an emphasis on kind of the trust when I can't feel, when I can't see, when I can't, you know. And so Mm. there's a formative growth that God is actually using those seasons to draw us closer to Jesus, closer to intimacy with him, closer to knowledge of him. And so you've got that kind of language. On the other hand, you have a language of uh, today, many would maybe use the language of like deconstruction. And I know that's a loaded term and different people are going to define that differently. But the way I'd want to maybe frame that here would be like deconstruction to apostasy, right? Like when there is a broad scale movement of many, you and I have many friends that we've seen this in, the, in their own lives, uh, many who are dismantling, not just like some, False beliefs to get a better, healthier version of Christianity, but actually dismantling their understanding of the historic Christian faith and departing from Jesus. It's ultimately something that's moving them away from intimacy with Jesus. It's not just the down part of the down of the J curve. It's like down into the left, or <laughs> whatever. It's going not not left politically, you know, it's just going down, yeah, Boom. yeah, uh, with no no bottom in sight. And so uh, on that front, it's like, dude, uh, we know so many friends who land in this place of almost going like, dude it's not just like my tradition. It's whether you're talking about Reformed or Anglican or Lutheran or Anabaptist or Catholic or Orthodox, like the big picture, generous historic orthodoxy of the capital C church. Like it's a process that leads them away from Jesus and life with God. And so I'm curious, like for you as you have been on this journey and in, in the crafting of this album, where would you see this album kind of between fitting between those or in uh, even if yeah. you might use different language, but in that kind of th- those extremes. And I think a bigger thing at the end of the day, like what characterizes a journey of wrestling with God that ultimately leads you into greater trust and intimacy with Christ versus a journey that ultimately pulls you away and usually yeah, or, becoming better versus becoming bitter, you know?
1: Yeah, that's really, really good. Well, I, yeah, man, I think. Uh, so uh, a couple of things, I, I think, first of all, let me just say, very clearly i'm still there like i'm still wrestling through the questions uh but i'm becoming more comfortable with the questions and the doubt right recognizing that i think that that's an integral part of our our faith and well it's at least an integral part of my faith i think without doubt uh without seasons of doubt your your faith isn't really being galvanized the way it should be and that that is an important thing and again you know along the lines of sort of that more prosperity-oriented, um, Torah-based kind of a thing, uh, we tend to shy away from those. We think that something's wrong if we're doubting. And I think that it's perfectly normal for us to doubt. And so I feel, I felt a lot of permission to say the things that I've said, to wrestle in the way that I've wrestled, to exhaust myself against God in the way that I have. And I think that the more I sit in the shadows, the more questions I have, right? So that... Yeah, and you're right. There is a deconstruction. There is a deconstruction that is healthy, and there's a deconstruction that that that's unhealthy. I mean, you you yourself wrote that article. Um, <laughs> you Not that know, deconstruction, deconstruction. <laughs> <loved>. Exactly. <laughs> well, even then, I, I would the say I would yeah. say you were missing one point. I think there are five reasons why people deconstruct, mm. and I think I think you maybe got Adam. You know, if if I remember right, it was um, it was well. You you tell me the four, and then I'll tell you what you missed.
0: Oh, totally, dude. So, uh, it, for those who don't know, maybe you haven't seen the article, uh, the gist was going, man, we often treat deconstruction like just an intellectual phenomenon of like, you need to read this apologetics book or have a thing going. And there's often a lot more beneath the surface that's driving the deconstruction process. So, a couple factors, I said so it's not an exhaustive list, but a few factors that I've seen. Uh, one, maybe the most prominent one has been church hurt, whether that's abuse, uh, really serious, you know, personal uh, or even mistreatment from the hands of Christians that you've trusted and walked with, or more generally, um, uh disillusionment with seeing the moral failures of the church you see leaders falling and people that you trusted and look up to so church hurt was one big one second one was poor teaching as some people have grown up and say for example fundamentalist environments where we got a really unhealthy view of god that's not actually shaped by christ and the gospel and we see jesus actually doing a form of deconstruction there that i've done and others have done which is you have heard it said aka bad interpretations of the bible and bad religious But Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you, Mm -hmm. helping reconstruct a more biblical vision at the heart of what God's communicating through his word and through his spirit to actually draw us closer to Jesus and see with him. Um, So poor teaching. The third one was um, a desire to sin. Uh, and that was just going like, I'm not saying everybody and I'm not saying if you're friends, you can you should be going like, oh, you just want to sin. But I am saying like for some of us, for myself included, I can go through times where we're wrestling with, I don't know if I buy this with the Christian faith. And there can actually be more going on of going, man, really, I kind of want that affair or I want that thing that God said I shouldn't have. I want or I, I want kind of whatever the thing is that that um, that I, I want more than God, you know, and I, I think it's naive to. Ignore that aspect um, and to kind of go, man, there's a check engine light on the heart there to go. It's a good diagnostic to ask, man, when I'm wrestling with God, is there something deeper down that I actually want or desire beneath the intellectual questions I might be raising um, that, that plays a role in this? And then the fourth one was what I called street cred. And I got a lot of flack for like being outdated. It's true. I grew up on like villain and Ted's in the 80s or whatever, you know, so call it clout, whatever, right? But, but the idea here going there, uh, an accommodation to cultural and social pressure. And so uh, many environments, I say, especially in urban environments and here on a college campus environment, uh, people often find themselves. Man, I grew up in the church, but then I moved. I find myself in a social environment where. Dude, it's not hip to be a Christian anymore, whatever. Like, it, it makes you feel yeah. a little more on the outside or an outcast. So I'm going to underplay. I'm going to minimize. Or even uh, if I talk about my doubts and my struggle and my wrestle, that's going to get me cultural applause. But if I talk about my trust in Christ, my faith, my conviction, the way He's changing and forming me, that's going to be met with an eye of suspicion, maybe, or goody two shoes or whatever it might be. And so big picture, that was a little long detour there. But just to go, yeah, that heart was going there's deeper stuff going on than just the intellectual questions, the yeah. apologetics books. Um, but there's often can be church hurt, bad teaching in the background, uh, could be a desire to sin, and there could be uh, an accommodation to social pressure.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So fifth I, I think there's a fifth one because, and I don't know that as I listen to you talk about. And sorry if I just made you explain your whole article again. <laughs> oh, that good. That's good. That's but good. But I would say I think that um, suffering is its own reason for deconstruction it i do think that it falls in to uh one of those you know a fifth category i guess because i do think it's enough where people as they suffer they look at and it could fall into bad teaching because then you're interpreting your uh your own subjective experience against the things that you've been taught and so that could be a reason but i do think that there is just simply a season where we go through really difficult times. And, and that causes its own sense of um, almost like grieving what you thought you believed or what you, what you thought you knew. And, and so uh, that, and that is what happened to me. And I I think that, you know, I've been reading a lot of the Christian mystics lately, you know, just going back to some of those. And, um, and I, and one of the things that I'm, I'm captivated by is just the difference between a cataphatic understanding and an apophatic understanding, and I think that in the West we tend to have a primarily a very cataphatic approach to the way that we, the way that we live.s and, and cataphatic is basically, uh, you know, catechism—that sort of what you know is really going to inform everything that that uh, that you're experiencing. And apophatic is more of that experiential, uh, that part of our our faith experience where it's not so tangible. It's not something that you that you know, but it's more uh the what you're experiencing, how you're experiencing the presence of God. And so I I think that uh that cataphatic apophatic difference was key for me. And my counselor put it in ways like this. He said left brain, right brain, right? So left brain is very cataphatic. It's 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 uh you you, you apprehend the world to uh, manipulate it in some sense, right? So so I need to apprehend more information so that then I can make sense of, of all that I'm seeing and experiencing. And left brain is more, uh, I'm going to experience the world. Uh, I'm going to participate in the world to experience it or experience the world to participate in it. And so I think, and some people are very left brain and, and some people are very right brain. I'm very a right brain oriented kind of person. So that apophatic approach was helpful for me. And here's why that's important. That has been important for me because everything, everything I've learned in seminary and everything that I learned as a pastor and everything I taught as a pastor did not, it, it, it did, it fell short in really truly helping me navigate this time. and, 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 and i think if we're only relying on the apophatic a, a, in the cataphatic if we're only relying on on what we know then i think that that's going to be uh it's going to serve as a detriment in seasons like this cuz you just can't figure it out and the more i know doesn't really help me in this situation and so uh that's that's a long way around just simply saying yeah there there has been a deconstruction for me and uh, and in that place, I just want to reiterate like I felt th- that that God was okay with me wrestling and, and and I think oftentimes we don't feel that, right? Like we feel like we've gotta get back on that road and when in reality, like I think that wrestling and I fully know, you know like Rick used to say like you're gonna pop out the other side with with a dislocated hip in the wrestling, you know, like you, you referring might
0: to Jacob in the yes. old Testament and wrestling with God and his hip dislocated. Yeah, totally.
1: You know, and it's not that it's an easy wrestling match. It's, it's not, I don't wrestle because of street cred or clout, or I'm not choosing to wrestle because uh, it's faddish or that's deconstruction is kind of the hip thing right now or whatever. I'm wrestling truly because uh, I, I, I don't want to just simply subscribe to something because, um somebody said I should and I I, I but I want to do the due diligence to work it through, to wrestle it through, wrestle it to the ground and ask the questions I need to ask and say the things I need to say. And I and I I really I really think that we shy away from this in multiple ways in the church and one of the ways is just simply lamenting. you know we don't we don't give ample. some churches do. I mean we came we both came from MAGO where those seasons in within Christian worship, both lament and Advent is its own sense of lament. That rhythm of those 40 days before Christmas happens, that is called Advent. It literally means arrival. You're waiting for something. Well, they didn't know they were waiting. They didn't know Christ was actually coming at that point in time. And there had been a 400 years of absolute darkness. And talk about a dark night of the soul, 400 years of darkness. And then, and, and then Advent represents that sort of season of waiting. It's its own lament. And then we have 40 days before Easter and that's its own lament. And I think in the church, we struggle with lament. I think for a lot of reasons, I think, I think we, we want to kind of, a, a we want to appear that we have um, hope and we do, but, but the rhythm of lament is so crucial to our own spiritual formation as people who would say that we were following the way of Jesus, like that, that is so crucial, and and saying those things that you that are deeply uh, in the corners of your heart where you feel like you can't express them. Those are the things God God already knows. Those things so lamenting those and expressing those uh, is not only helpful for for us in our own formation and our actually actually our own like. Uh, Psychological wellness, (laughs) you know, it's its own. Really, it's its own form of counseling for us. Just its own therapy of expression and and saying the things we need to say. But it's also helpful for other people because if everybody feels like we're that happy person up on stage singing the happy clappy song, then we're in trouble. Like we need we need leaders who will lead in a, a season of lament. Teach teach us how to actually lament. And so that really is what these songs are. They're, they're my own lament working through and wrestling through my own deconstruction and my own doubt. And, and hopefully at the other end going, okay, that, that actually was therapeutic. That did something for me that was formational, spiritually formational and psychological, psychologically formational. So, hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, man. And yeah, a few points there, I think we really uh, agree really strongly on one is that you'd suffering can be a catalyst for really wrestling with God. If, if some people we want to call it deconstruction, you know, but like kind of going, man, if you've believed, a, as you called earlier, a prosperity gospel, uh, suffering can be helpful to kind of have a healthy dismantling of that false belief to possibly rebuild a yes. better right belief, the God who's with you in suffering, you know, and, uh, as well as like the importance, the significance of lament that at times um, seems particularly in the West, like we haven't did a good job of incorporating sadness and crying out to God as, as part of our even, uh, communal, you know, practices as the church, you know, that helps shape and form us right. in those ways. Um, and then also your point too, that like, man, we should not, uh, we should be wary of our potential to try and control God with particular ways of approaching him. You know, like that, uh, what's the classic God made man in his image and humanity returned the favor, or <laughs> you know, like, like <laughs> we can be constructing God in our own image, you know? Right. Um, one, one kind of, just for the sake of dialogue, you know, one, one nuance maybe in how I, I've, you know, approached or understood like the cataphatic apophatic in my own life. That's been really helpful. has been, um, I've seen the cataphatic tradition is kind of this emphasis on how God has revealed himself uh, and the apophatic is kind of this emphasis on God is bigger than any of your conceptions yes. or his revelation. Right. And yeah. so, um, and where dude, I've really been grateful for the cataphatic emphasis has been going dude, my, my take would be like from the apophatic, you don't get God as father, the intimacy yeah. of it. You don't get, Christ, the son revealing the fullness of God. You don't get, uh, he is the lion and the lamb and like all this imagery that just the uh, biblical tradition and the Christian history and all that, like just rejoices and delights in how God has revealed himself to us. Um, I think what the apophatic can help us do is no man, those images can't contain God. So if we say God's a father, someone go, well, yeah, he doesn't have a beard and male genitalia or whatever. He's not a biological male, you know? Um, he's bigger than that. Um, But one of the dangers I can see sometimes in uh, some of the apathetic movements with historically today is you kind of want, not you, but that tradition can kind of want to lead to a place where it's like we can't trust God's revelation of himself. And so we wind up with this God who, like, he's maybe the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He's super big. He's out there. But you don't actually get dude, he approaches us with the intimacy of a father mm. or yeah, the strength mm. of a lion or the sacrificial yeah. atoning love of a lamb, you know, like the lambs I know, but Jesus, you know, like his death and what yeah. that represents and some of those, those kind of realities. Um, and, and so that's a good segue in, into my next question, which you can, you know, yeah, well, let me, too, let, you let me, yeah, yeah, hold that,
1: hold that. Cause I, I have just Great. one thought like, yeah. uh, Yeah. Just even that, you know, as we, uh, your question was around deconstruction, healthy deconstruction versus unhealthy deconstruction. And, and I, and I do think that you had mentioned it earlier, just that, that, that whole idea of even resurrection, you know, the death of something and the resurrection of something. And I think that's, that's really important. Honestly, like I'm very turned off by um, this idea that we've got God, wrapped up in a box and we then we wrap a nice little bow around it and, you know we give it to people and you know yes the revelation you need the cataphatic and the apophatic both both need to exist together and i think that uh i think when for me when i when i have been suffering uh that's when god like becomes massive right and to the point where you can almost go i don't want anything to do with it with him and, and stiff arm him, uh, out of anger or, or whatever, or just out of fear that I don't understand you. I don't, under, I don't understand what's going on here. And so, or you can allow God to get out of the box because he's not in the box anyway, whatever box you've created or that I created, it doesn't, it's not real. And so then, then for me, what is emerging now is not absent of his revelation, but it, it's, it's the revelation that, has, that I've been given plus this sort of apophatic uh, experience of, okay, he's much bigger than I thought. And the way that he works in the world, I'm still trying to figure out how that works, but, but, I, but I think it's an emergence of something. I think the problem we, we face with deconstruction is when we, we deconstruct and then don't bother to reconstruct anything and, and that's, you know, that's when you see guys becoming atheists or, or whatever. It's, it's sort of, I mean, and there are many, many people that, you know, and I know and artists that are well-known that have just decided to completely stiff arm the whole the whole idea of God anyway. And I, and I, and I think, you know, that idea, there's a song I wrote called Dead Reckoning. It was the first single that was released. And, and it, I use that idea of navigation, right. In Dead Reckoning, uh, Dead Reckoning is, is a term that before GPS, right? We had this idea of process of of calculating kind of um, a current position of a moving object, right? Like, uh, and we would use like a previously determined position and and we and, and and sort of a fix and then our trajectory and then incorporating estimates of speed and heading and direction and and all of that, and and so that that's how. In navigational terms, that's how ships would get from one place to the next in an open body of water. And I used this concept to describe sort of the process of being lost after the death of my mom, trying to reconcile what I thought I knew about God to the way it felt like he left me to my own pain and then went totally silent, which I forgot to mention. Like when I left Amago, I just felt like God went silent on me, which really caused me to question in the first place how I was hearing his voice then, you know? And, uh, and that brought a whole lot of questions, but it just felt like, um, it felt like he had left me to my own pain and then went silent. And I felt like a ship in a storm, just rudderless and, and sort of out there. And that is, the, the, the words are like, give me distance and direction and I'll measure the points between my distance and my transgressions as I'm finding your voice in this dead reckoning. And that's the way it feels to deconstruct. You're just sort of left out there. One of the things, one of the metaphors I love in scripture is when the storm is there and Jesus is on the boat with them, right? Like he's, he's, or, or in one case he's he walks out to them. And I think that it's that place in in wandering around a place where you feel rudderless, where I feel rudderless, that surprisingly is the place where the re-emergence of something beautiful is happening, this resurrection of of faith. And and a recognition of based on revelation, like you say, who God is and that yes, did he just explode out of my box? Yes, he did. But I want to be egoless and humble enough to recognize that I know that I'm not God and I know I don't have the answers. So I can't be left out in that ship, rudderless, and decide I know where I'm going. I'm clueless to that. And so that metaphor is beautiful of just Of Jesus coming out, calming the storm and going like, this is exactly where I want you right here, because this is where you learn um, that your ego dies, that you're small and fragile and weak and, and, and yet valuable and priceless as a child of God. And that this is where he meets, this is where he's meeting me in that space. And then once I'm able to look back on that, and I have been in the last couple months to look back on that, like, man, that's where I was in the water floating around absolutely clueless about what was going on in the middle of a storm. And I, I can look back on that and go, man, that's where most of the transformation is happening right there is in that, is in that space. And it feels like in the moment it's chaotic and God doesn't even exist, but that's the, that's the value and beauty of time in pain.
0: Mm. Wow. Well, one of the things I hear you saying there too, it sounds like, uh, Yeah, the importance of being self-aware in that process of your own journey, where the potential of your ego, uh, pride versus humility, like knowing what you don't know, some of those kind of things, which is um, really powerful. And that's a good segue, I think, to another question. I'd love to talk a little bit about self-awareness in the midst of a cultural context that really elevates doubt, right? And so I want to think of this. I mean, I I think that there's a backdrop to this. I'd say you know, postmodern language sounds sounds old-fashioned, but anyways, like, there are philosophical undercurrents behind uh, where we're at culturally today. There are social currents with urbanization and a variety of things that are happening there. All these sort of things, and, and that's a whole other conversation. But it seems to me that we have a cultural context today that highly elevates doubt and struggle. So the one thing is, I find in many circles I'm in, if someone's like, "How are you doing?" I'm like, I'm doing great. You know, I get met with kind of the stink eye, like the look of suspicion. Like, really? Yeah. You know, <laughs> dude, totally. I, I, you know uh, I'm not being authentic because I'm having a good day, right? But if I were to go, dude, I don't know. I'm really struggling. You know, well, tell me about it. And then I kind of let people in on things. And it's like it's met with high affirmation, high empathy, high praise. You know, and so it feels like there is a – and that's not all bad. You know, I mean there's a desire to – have have a space where we can really be raw and find community and vulnerability with other people, but it, this is just my my bent. You know, it's like it seems like it gets to this place where there's an implicit incentive structure to motivate the doubt and the struggle for the sake of again cultural applause. I don't think I'm not saying that's what you're doing on the album. I'm not saying that's what everyone's doing. who's doing it, but I think um, we're often way more shaped by our cultural environment than we know. And so, in many ways, there are things that we think this is just me being authentic, and it's actually This is me wrapped up in a social community and a cultural environment where these things are rewarded. And my sense has been, man, it feels like it can put me and us and as people today in a place where, um, if I talk about, uh, again, doubt, struggle, darkness, hard things, um, that gets positive response. If I talk about trust and, um, God Mm. with me in the midst of it and how I'm experiencing it, what I'm learning, all those kinds of things that doesn't get the same kind of acclaim, you know, and and often even like disdain or something, you know, like, ah, you're just being Pollyanna, you know? And so, um, and it's sort of like the inverse of the happy clappy Christianity. It's almost like a wallow in a Christian, you know? And so, yeah. So my question is, um, I don't think that means that we shouldn't process honestly with doubt uh, but I do think it means, um, man, how do you be self-aware in the midst of struggle, struggling wrestling with God? How I'm, how do you approach the self-awareness to almost like discern or navigate, mm. man, God, there's a part of this that's me, you know, like there's mm. a part of this that it's part of my journey. It's a part of what you're actually doing in me. It's part of this process. And discerning and navigating between that and some of the other uh, maybe unhealthy pressures that can, uh, if you're not self-aware can maybe motivate an unhealthy journey of struggle. Yeah,
1: that's good. That's really good. Well, I, yeah, man, I think any, any strong faith, uh, is, is rooted in one of the, one of the things that's rooted in is it has a healthy self-awareness, right? Like, and I, Mm. I, you know, I, I, I mean, I think with both spiritual direction, my spiritual director has has helped me understand uh, my own leanings, you know. So whether and use tools like the Enneagram or Strengths Finders or Myers Briggs or any of those kinds of tools, those are super helpful to recognize. The reason I think those have been really helpful is because, uh, particularly the Enneagram will show, and Myers Briggs as well will show you where you go in unhealth and where you go in stress versus where you might go in health and security. And I I think that if I can pay attention to that, then it helps me recognize. If I start to see my drifts, and I can I can identify. I didn't used to be able to do this when I was younger. You know, it was just I was impulsive and I just did things and I didn't know why I did them. And then and if I'm able to look back on that now, I'd go, oh, I could see that. Like uh, my personality is works in such a way that. If I'm under too much stress or I'm in a place of unhealth and I'm pulling away uh, from people, from God, all of those things, then I can see my drifts go this way. And that's, and that is really, and that, that self awareness then really helps me understand uh, my own position. I do think that it really, like, you could be as self aware as you want to, you still have to be honest with yourself. And I, so I think it's more about self-honesty than it's about self-awareness because mm-hmm. I, I can be aware, but if I'm not honest with myself and with other people, then, then I'm, I'm off the rails, you know, then, then I'm basically, uh, I'm pulling up, I'm creating horcruxes spiritually, you know, like if you know the Harry Potter world and uh you know, but every time he, he kills somebody, he, he splits his soul and he takes that thing that he, that he takes an artifact and he and he puts his soul into one of those artifacts. And I, and that's a funny little illustration of a really serious thing we do spiritually where like I make, I can make cruxes with myself. And if I'm not honest, I split my soul there and I put my, this part of me over here and then I leave this part of me over here. And then I got to go try to back, try to go back and find those. And if you do that too many times, then you kind of lose yourself. You don't know who you are. And so it really does come back down to like a, and an honesty with yourself uh to actually do something with the awareness that you have and and i think that, that that is huge so yeah but but anyway back back to your back to your question i i think that in the midst of some of that self-awareness uh i i had a battle with myself on this thing man like th- I use some language in the album that you know is is less than ideal you know and in you and ben you know two of my best friends took me aside and they were like you guys were like you know maybe <laughs> don't use those words and i don't know if you remember what i said but uh i do i i remember that's like it was yesterday when we were in that cabin and you said what why do you have those words why do, why do you why do you got to use it and um you guys were just being really good friends going like if you don't use those words, you're going to like more people will listen to these songs. That's just the reality. And I think I, I what I said was it's because I really meant them, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I really meant those words when I said them and they seem to, um, they seem to capture something that nothing else, uh, captured in the moment. And, you know, like in one of the songs in Cotton the thistle, it says, um, you know, uh, and I'm caught in the tensions of my mind. And these fences you design to keep your distance while the blind lead the blind. And all the games you like to play and all the answers you delay keep me questioning cliches in this mystical shrage. that line, all the games you like to play. uh, I use the F word in one of them, you know, And, and that, and, and that is probably the worst thing I say in the record. And when you look at the context, it really is, I was sitting down with Evan Wickham two weeks ago and he was like, wow, that's bold, you know, to say that to God. And yet at the, at the time, and I battled myself with that word because, because part of me was like, am I saying it was, I had to have enough awareness to say, am I saying this? Because I know that, there's a a contingent of people that will love that I said that, or am I saying it because it does really truly capture the, it's the only word that captures what I am trying to say. And, and with the tone and posture that I'm trying to say it with. And I ended up at the end of that going, that's the reason, but I had to battle through that. And I think that, I think that that is, that wrestling through, okay, does this really, do I need to say this? Uh, and there's a few other parts in the record where I pulled the words because I was like, okay, this is overkill. You know? In fact, I had that word five times in that song and I brought it down to one. And because I'm like, yeah, I okay. Remember, I
0: remember hearing the earlier version. I was yeah, like, oh exactly. yeah, that's all over and, the place.
1: And, the, and you know, and, 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 you know, like, much like Augustine wrote, you know, where like there are full books, recanting the things he wrote initially, you know, and I'm sure you're going to have those books later on in your life where you're like, man, I, I regret saying that. In fact, I don't believe any of this anymore. I might get there, but for right now, and here's, what's interesting about that. I've had a lot of conversations with people about this record who are on the fringes, you know, that are sort of in that place where deconstructing has taken them away from the church and completely away from God. And for whatever reason, that kind of vulnerability and honesty that I had, that authenticity, that was truly motivated by not wanting street cred or clout or trying to be whatever it is, you know, more um, arrogant than I needed to be in the record. They've, those are the moments in the record that have brought them back to a conversation of going, I really appreciate that authenticity. The way you say that, talk to me about where you're at now. And it's opened up conversations and inroads with some people that are that, that have been really good. So I'm, I'm watching the way certain people, a demographic of people are hearing it and listening to it. And it, and it, and and I'm glad I left those things in there right now. I'm glad I, I left them in there. I may not be <laughs> later. I don't know <laughs> no, if that gets at some 80. of what you're talking about. No.
0: But. Yeah. Thanks man. That's great. Uh, thanks for sharing. And maybe to share a few of my thoughts, which we you know we've, we've got, yeah. talk, we've talked about this, gone back and forth. Um, you know, a few of my thoughts too had to do with even, um, the with say expletives and or profanity like in 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 a context like that. Um one question about like different contexts like in which that may or may not be appropriate, right? Like public versus private, for example. So yeah. uh, to give an example, maybe an illustration, um if my wife and I are at home having a conversation and she's like man, you can be such an effing jerk, Josh. you can know, be such right. an effing husband or a jerk about husband. I can't hear um, Holly ever
1: saying that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm going to hear that. And that's alerting me like, whoa, yeah. she's frustrated. There's something in our relationship that needs attention. And what, it's almost helpful for alerting me to like, whoa, where she's at and kind of the gravity and we need to process through that. And so we're going to go, hopefully the kids aren't around. You know, we're going to go talk yeah. about and process that. But if Holly goes out on social media and is like, my husband is such an effing jerk, you know, like, that's a totally different dynamic. Suddenly the public dimension of it um, is, is just, I I think kind of obviously it's introducing a different dynamic to, uh, to things that would feel unhealthy towards her relationship with me. It would actually feel like that's not actually helping us cultivate intimacy. That's actually pulling you further away, so to speak. But then even a third angle, I'm even thinking about just now as we're talking about this is like uh, maybe a third example though, that's kind of in the middle would be, but what if Holly has like a close circle of friends and uh, and she's trying to let them know she's struggling. She says, man, you know, Josh and I had a fight the other day. I told him he was an effing jerk. And I just, it's because I got all this frustration and they know me, they love me, they care about me and they're going to help walk together through that and support her. Yeah. And and she's actually, again, like, and, and and it seems to me, I'm just kind of thinking of this out loud right now, but it seems to me like the, the maybe the question beneath the question that I'd have is, is it cultivating and leading towards greater intimacy with God mm, yeah. or distance. And that might be hard to discern. You know, I've advocated in, uh, in my book, the pursuing God, You know, I talk about, man, just prayer is like raw honesty. The goal is not to be good, but to be honest. And so, um, I've advocated for man in communion with God and prayer with God, bringing the raw, honest state of mm. our heart before him, even if that includes stuff that feels raw, you know? And, um, but, I, so anyways, it's helpful to just kind of process through that together, Yeah. but that's maybe a good segue into one of my final questions might be, um, just think of this now, but like, uh, let's take that third example I used, uh, Holly kind of processing with a few friends as an analogy, right? Um, one of the things that I've observed here, at within our congregation and all, is like, it seems like one key mark of healthy versus unhealthy struggle is whether you do it in the to, you press into healthy Christian community or it presses you out to kind of isolation and, um, grappling mm-hmm. on your own. Like it, it seems like there's a tendency and this is probably harder, especially in like a happy, clappy Christian environment, you know, of like, dude, they're not going to get it. So I got to isolate. But even within a context where it feels like there's, uh, encouragement to lament, there's permission to question, there's all those things. It's seems like there's something human in, um, a tendency to maybe isolate when we struggle and yeah. in my mind the image someone used once it really stuck was like almost like a, a an antelope or something that kind of separates from the pack and suddenly becomes way easier to pick off by the lion you know versus mm. like the community and the support and going that there's a raw honesty with god and maybe with some trusted um folks who where you know and are known and kind of process through that together and have friends who strong and so maybe a, a uh one of the final questions here is, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts and just, um, what, what you think kind of going through this journey and it sucks. I know I've been like in Arizona and you're there, but you, you're Mm -hmm. friends. Like what, what kind of role has community been for being on that journey? And what are some of the temptations or struggles you, or challenges you faced in navigating? Yeah. Being known not only by God, but by others with the process.
1: Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) I uh Yeah, that's a really good question and I I would say man, I'm just blessed with friends like you, like Ben, uh you know, and there and there is the tendency. I I am one of those guys that will isolate in the midst of the struggle. Uh there's a lot of reasons for that, I think. Um but but I think that that is the tendency. And then, and then I'll, I'll come out of that and realize, man, I gotta, I gotta be connected to to some friends. Part of the reason is, is the shame and attached to all of it. And, uh, and there's a lot of shame in, in admitting, um, especially, you know, being a pastor and then getting out. um, My job is to work with pastors. So, so, you know, it's, it's a, so I have a decision to make there. Do I share with some of the guys that I'm close to that I work with, you know, really, truly where I'm at. And, um, the, the beauty of that has been, I work with about 300 pastors up and down the West coast. And there's a really large handful of those guys that have become very close to me. And, and in that work, you know, a lot of the conversation is about compassion, but then uh, we get that stuff figured out. And then, and then the rest of the hour is just talking about life and, I've got a decision to make there. Do I reveal really where I'm at? And, and then, uh, and if not, then we're just going to be surface at that level. And so that's sort of like, yeah, I've got my really close group of friends, but then there's this sort of core congregation crowd sort of thing, you know, and then that sort of middle tier is a lot of guys that I would say are, are close, close friends. Um, And, and in that, what I've recognized is that, I've never had a hard time being vulnerable when I want to be vulnerable. It's when I'm, t- I have the tendency to hide. You know, that's when it's tough. And in this season, I could tell that you know, I'm not, I'm not in the pastor club anymore. So then there's that that piece of it. And I've talked talked initially about all the identity stuff wrapped up in that. So it's been even harder. And I would say that's probably the most spiritually formative thing in this whole process is the fact that I. I am not a pastor at this point, but I still work with pastors. So I'm sort of sort of in the club, but not really. And so that, with that weight on it, I still have that. It makes that choice to be vulnerable with those people even more so. And I've chosen to be vulnerable in those moments. And here's what happens. Vulnerability breeds vulnerability, right? So anytime somebody's vulnerable, the person that's listening to that person be vulnerable all of a sudden sees an on-ramp to vulnerability for themselves because they see an invitation. And so my, vulnerab- my vulnerability has breeded vulnerability in other leaders to the point where they're telling me I'm not their leader. I'm not their congregant. I'm not their pastor. I'm not their elder. I'm not their wife. I'm not their best friend who goes to the church. Uh, I'm just me, the compassion guy. And what happens is all of a sudden uh, I get thrown up on by them. And it's, and it's beautiful, you know, uh, it's beautiful because i think that people look for those sort of inroads to vulnerability and that safety it's a safe place so to answer your question yeah i've i have to fight that urge to let people in and honestly i think it's 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 easier to even do that in that crowd harder for me to be like 100% vulnerable with my best friends with with you and ben because here's why i know what i'm going to hear back I already know it. Yeah, you know, know what I mean?
0: Him that, <laughs> totally. I
1: I know what I'm going <laughs> to hear back. And
0: we're like AI, man. You, we're yeah. totally <laughs> we're like but artificial the, intelligence. You've got our. Yeah.
1: Here's where self awareness <laughs> comes into there, Josh, yeah. and that honesty piece is because if I already know what you're going to say back to me, and I already know how that's going to impact me or hit me, I'm already being convicted. I'm already being. I'm I'm already going through the process, even before I've said anything, I'm processing through the ramifications of being vulnerable with you. And in that, if I'm self-aware to, if I'm self-aware enough to hear myself process through that conversation before it ever happens, and I'm and I can tell that I'm reacting the way I'm reacting, then maybe I, those are the things that I need to be listening to the most, you know, are, are those. So so that's why it's hard. I think that's why it's harder to tell, you know, the people that we're closest to the hardest things. I could open up mm. to a bunch of people I just mm. met until I'm blue in the face. But man, to to be honest with you, to be honest with my wife, to be honest with Ben, like those, that's the the most difficult place to be.
0: Mm. Elderly, That's man. Well said, there. well said, man. Well, yeah, I got one last question, and yep. uh, we might have to make the, this one a little short, just because, mm-hmm. man, I, I'm not Joe Rogan. We don't do like a three hour podcast here. or oh, Whatever. You know, like, I mean, we're going a little long here from our usual, but this has yeah. been so good. I don't want to. I don't want to stop talking. So, uh, but I do. I'd love to land on a theme of beauty, you know. Yeah. And here's one of the things that just struck me: the the music, the instrumentation, the, all that on this record is so. Beautiful. And I remember mm. throughout the process as you were recording, you would send me and Ben like these tracks, you know, like like real tracks. And someone would have like all these instruments, you know, like really big band. And then others would be the same song, but super stripped down right, and just doing right. you know, the acoustic, whatever, you know. And and I could tell, man, you were really putting so much time and intentionality into the craft of the mm. music. And sometimes I think we can approach there's a danger in approaching art or creativity as just a means to the message. You know, like hey, it's a it's a platform to say what I want to say. And really, there's so much more going on here, I think, in actually the intentionality and the craft of music. For others, it might not be musicians, but maybe the role that creativity might play in their own journey or struggle with, I don't know, journaling or being out Mm. in nature or whatever those things might be. But for you, it was really crafting this album as sort of uh, the the intricate surrounding web or whatever analogy you want to use for this process of your journey. And it seems like beyond any of just the message in the album, um, there's a certain message in the intentionality with the music and creativity itself, and so yeah. uh, it's kind of final question. I wonder if you just talk about, man, from that beauty lens, the role that this album and even creativity and crafting the orchestration, instrumentation, like what all that meant for you yeah. in the midst of the, the the journey you've been on.
1: That's good. That's good. Uh, well, when I when I was writing these songs, I had no intention of recording them, and my buddy, David Greco, who produced this record, he also works for compassion used to produce records back in the day. And, uh, I called him to help me finish writing dead reckoning. It was the last song, uh, that I was writing in the first phase of writing. And I called him and I, I said, Hey, can you, can you come over? He came right over. And, uh, we finished that song and he said, these are amazing. Do you have like, show me the other ones. So I showed him the other ones and he said, we have to record these. And, um, and I was like, well, I don't have any money to do that. I'm not going to, you know, I had made records before. I just, that whole process. And, but he, he said, I'll do it for free. And he stepped in and then brought brought in a bunch of musicians to play. And the crazy thing is that as the album progressed, um, first thing I'll say is that the genre of Americana is timeless. and And so there's a reason why we made certain decisions with instrumentation and with um you know i mean i i sent you certain things it's like man this is this sounds like war on drugs or this sounds like death cab or whatever it is you know like these bands that i love (laughs) and and we had to keep on making decisions that kept it in uh in sort of the vein that we had already started with and the, the beautiful thing about americana is it's just a timeless genre that that uh i want i i mean i'd love for these i'd love for these songs to 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 remain in a place where it's like not bound by uh, a typical genre that maybe is going to be gone in five years or 10 years or whatever. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the reasons why we made the decisions we made. And then, and then honestly, like some of the instrumentation, like the lap steel, you know, we use lap steel a number of times. And a lot of the stuff that we incorporated is if you listen to it, it's just got this uh, real lens of, um, groaning and, and, uh, crying out. And so where the lyrics are doing one thing, the music is sort of complementing it by doing the same thing. And there's one song in particular on this record where it, we don't do that with it, uh, state of war, which is a story about a man who, uh, a woman who leaves a man. And, um, a lot of people hear that. They're like, Hey, you you not marry. Okay. You know, or whatever. but it, it really is just a metaphor for, uh, Feeling like God just sort of left, and um, and and then it was sort of this fight. It's, it's a state of war. You stated your case and just walked out the door. No answer for why you don't know, come around here anymore. And uh, and in that song, the music really doesn't. Uh, it doesn't do that same thing. It's more of like a pop country song uh, kind of a thing, and it and it and it works on its own. But for the most part, the record really is just this sense of longing, and and the art follows that. And, um, I I don't know, man, I do think that art, you know, music in particular and other art forms, but I think music does this in a way that others don't, it just, it's, it opens up the soul, opens up the heart and, and allows for an expression that words don't necessarily, um, accomplish. And, And so I think the music almost says at times more than the lyrics in this, Mm -hmm. just a real cry Mm -hmm. and, 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 and reflects this uh, posture of uncertainty and, um, and insecurity and fear and, and doubt. So that's, that's why we made some of those decisions we made with, with the music. And I'm so grateful for some of the people that stepped in David Greco uh, a band out here in Portland, the, um, the Margos, their whole band stepped in. Kerry Sampsel, uh, Kelsey Samsel, his wife. And, uh, and then some guys in Nashville, guy in Colorado. It was just a sort of a smattering of musicians that came together for this project that really brought out the songs in the way that they needed to. And there were some, de- some decisions that I made on songs. I was like, I like that better. I would have done that differently. And now that I listened to these songs, I really realized the beauty of having an incredible producer who can Mm. keep you accountable to holding the sound that you had agreed on initially. So, yeah, Mm. it's been way to go, David. Yeah, exactly. He did. He crushed it. (laughs)
0: That's awesome, man. Well, Paul, man, I love you, man. I'm so grateful for our friendship. And, dude, I'm always just love our conversations. And dude, I'm grateful for you. Uh, us being able to have this conversation together, even publicly, you know, for those totally. who are listening and all. Uh, for those who are listening, I hope this has been helpful. I know some of you, uh, there may be some of you who are wrestling with God yourself, and if that's the case, man, we want to be a church community where that's yeah. okay. That's it we want to be a place where we can wrestle together in community, seeking Jesus together in the midst of the hard stuff. Uh, some of you may have friends who are wrestling as well, and and you're trying to navigate, man, how do I walk with them and be a friend of them and all. And we hope this was helpful and just. Uh, hearing some friends process through it together themselves and uh so maybe musicians you need to go out and make some killer music so mm. go for it but uh right. i hope this has been helpful man love you paul thanks love again too, and for all those listening uh, go in peace we'll see you next time
1: thanks for listening to this episode of the all of life podcast to get more information on redemption church tempe you can download the redemption tempe app or you can send an email to tempe at redemptionAz.com.